I want to tell you what a delight it is to... Um, I, I was showing my brother around the church yesterday. He'd never seen it. I said, it looks like a pizza hut. You know, and he went, yeah, it does. But I showed him the, I showed him the pastor's study, and I, I said, I've never had an office this nice. And that's true, because I, I worked for Northwest Airlines once, and it was on this old factory floor that was the size of about three football fields, and it was cubicles as far as the eye could see. And I had this little postage stamp size workspace, you know, and plodding along. I used to be a software engineer for Northwest Airlines at one point. And um, just how soul-crushing that was, you know. Some of you may be there. I imagine some of you work in a cubicle, and I, I, and I empathize, truly. Um, but I, I showed my brother the, the study, and the books are all on the, all on the bookshelves, and I said, I, I get a lot of good reading done in here. I get a lot of good studying done in here, and I really enjoy it. And so even this week, as I was working with this text and looking at my commentaries and thinking, I was just grateful for that space, that sort of sacred space that's in this building where... Um, I can read and process, and I, I hope the Spirit speaks, and then it, it's a time of preparation so that I hope, again, I hope that I bring you something that's of value to you, that the Spirit wants you to hear. And so thank you for that, I guess, freedom that I have as your pastor to take time and study. Um, it's maybe a, not just a freedom, but probably a requirement that I would do this. If I wasn't doing it, then you might be asking some good questions. Um, but I was really just struck by it this week of how, um, and how in love with the word I am and continue to be. And I praise God for that because it's just, it's something that he gave me is this fascination with this material, all of it. It's wonderful. And um, if I seem exuberant about it, I hope that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing because I, I, it comes out of this overflow. Uh, and I guess my hope is that we all can we can all have that relationship with the word where we read it and study it. And I'll be honest, I know it's, a, it's I, I don't want you to compare yourself to me in that respect because part of my job is to do this. And, and I know how busy you all are with your work and it's not your job to, if you, <laughs> I can imagine if you took the Bible to your workplace and said, well, the next four hours, I'm just going to read this. Sorry, boss. Uh, you might not have that job for too long, Right. So I know that if you were to do this, it would be in your free time, but it doesn't mean I don't enjoin you to do it in your free time. But I, I just realize that it's going to be more work for you to do it. But it's still great reward. It's great reward. And also to take this time uh, for the next 55 minutes, when, in which, no, I'm kidding, the next uh, maybe half an hour in which we'll look at this part of Scripture together. And I hope that that can serve as, as an immersion and a study of the Scripture for you and that you'll profit from it. So, our, just as an introduction, our reading today is Mark chapter 12, 1 through 17. It's found on page 1004 of the Bible in the pew in front of you, if you want to follow along. I want to give a little bit of background of this. Um, some of it came out in the children's sermon, but this, in chapter 11, the chapter before this, it starts with Jesus, at least in Mark's gospel, finally entering into Jerusalem after a lot of preparation and a lot of sort of directed ministry and teaching and walking, he's finally entered Jerusalem. And it's really the Palm Sunday passage. It's with the people. He comes on a donkey. The people throw branches and, uh, on the roadway, and he has this triumphal entry. And they, think, they all think, most of them think, this guy is going to inaugurate a new kingdom for us, a new earthly kingdom for us that's going to look great. You know, He's going to be in charge. God's going to be in charge. 
The enemies, whatever enemies we have, and they're all around us, they're all going to be destroyed, just like it talks about in the Old Testament, God coming and triumphing through his people. And so they're really excited. Then Jesus uh, kind of, he doesn't say, no, that's not happening, and at least not in quite in that way, but then he leaves town, and he comes back the next day, and he does what I mentioned in the children's sermon. He knocks over everything, and he runs people out of there. And in fact, for the better part of an afternoon, he prohibits or he, he impedes the, the commerce of the temple precinct for an afternoon. It says he did not permit anyone to pass through that, that temple area for the rest of that day, um, which is interesting. It's, that's a whole other subject as to why Jesus did that. But my sense is that it was because this was his father's house. And he was indignant, at the very least, that people were turning it into a commercial project and, in, and not as, as a house of prayer, not as a place where uh, God was sought after, but where, where profit was sought after. So as you can imagine, the people who are in charge of this place come up to him and they say, by what authority, by what possible authority do you think you're doing what you're doing? Um, and so... He, he, it begins a protracted, sort of week-long conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders that comes to a head finally at the cross. And as the week goes on, it gets sharpened and sharpened. This question of Jesus and who he is and his authority and what he's there in Jerusalem becomes clearer and clearer and clearer as the week goes on. But already Jesus is in Jerusalem, he's there, and so his, one of the things he really wants to do is start laying out in great detail what it is that he's about to do, which he's alluded to before. He said, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and be put to death and on the third day be raised again and so on. So this passage that we're in is continuing the line of dialogue about Jesus' authority. Um, and this is somewhat of his response to the people who have come to him asking, by what authority do you do this? And so if you'll follow along, Mark chapter 12, 1 through 17, again on page 1004. Chapter 12, verse 1. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken this parable 
against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your beautiful word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to draw your attention to two things, first of all. One is that the question of Jesus' authority is answered, partly here, at least, in a parable. This is how like Jesus is this. This is how Jesus answers a lot of questions. So we'll get more on that later. The second, though, and if you'll have to go down to, um, to verse 13 to find this, is that the, the leaders of the um, temple sent two other groups of people together to go and confront Jesus, and they were the Pharisees and the Herodians. Remember, the Pharisees were sort of the, the heroes of the people. They were anti-establishment, at least anti-religious establishment. They had their own religious practice, which they, they thought other people should follow. But they were highly suspicious of the leaders of the temple. And they were highly suspicious of the collaboration between the leaders of the temple and the Roman Empire. They, the, the Pharisees had no love for the Romans. And um, so, they, so the, the, the Pharisees uh, were sort of heroes of the people in that sense. But they were also opposed to Jesus because Jesus... Uh, had a lifestyle they didn't agree with. He ate with people they didn't approve with, of, of very much. And Jesus also reinterpreted the law, which they didn't like. They had really hung a lot on the law. Um, but it says the Pharisees and the Herodians joined together to go and challenge Jesus about this question of, of uh, paying taxes. The Herodians are a group of people who are allied with King Herod at that point. These are the people that the Pharisees would never even talk to on any given day. They would probably cross the street not to have to look them in the eye. But when Jesus is on the scene, old enemies uh, become friends just so they can oppose Jesus. You this old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And they're like, we hate each other, but we hate Jesus so much, let's... Let's do this thing together. So it was very strange. This is really interesting. It shows, it, it shows how sharp the division is getting in Jerusalem when Jesus arrives, that the Pharisees and the Herodians would do anything together, let alone breathe the, air, the same air within a foot of each other. But here they come to Jesus together, and they try to challenge him about uh, paying taxes to Caesar. So that's just important. It just goes to show what kind of atmosphere Jesus is in. It's a highly charged atmosphere with a lot of conflict, a lot of conflict um, focused at Jesus. And Jesus isn't backing down, as we see in this parable that he tells. He pushes that conflict right back at the people who are bringing it to him. He is not afraid of what they are doing. He actually welcomes it. 
He wants to crystallize the difference between what he is doing and what they are doing to such a point that nobody looking at it could think that they mean the same thing, that everybody looking at it would have to choose a side, one side or the other. And that's part of the goal of this parable, among others, is to clarify and sharpen the differences between what Jesus is doing and God, what God is doing through Jesus and what other people are doing in the name of God, so they think, and giving everybody who reads this and sees this a chance to make a clear decision about what side they really want to be on. So, let's go to that parable. It's a great parable. It's, it's becoming one of my favorite parables. It's, quite, it's actually, on some levels, it's a very simple parable. On another level, it's a very complex parable. And I would say, just looking at it, the goal of this parable, which makes it very unique, is to describe what is happening in real time. Because I love that. It's like a meta, sort of like, this parable that I'm telling you is happening right now because I'm telling it, but the things that I'm telling it about are happening all around us right now, too. It's a very unique parable in that respect. It's describing the current situation that Jesus is in right as he's telling it. It's like a mind trip, okay? It's just great. I love it. So it, it's unique and interesting for that reason. And it draws on the history of Israel. It draws on the history of God's people in that all throughout the, all throughout the ages, God's people had been sometimes faithful to God and then drifted away from that faithfulness and had followed other gods or followed their own appetites. And then God had, over the years, over the centuries, sent various prophets, and you can read the major and the minor prophets, and they don't fare, they don't fare well personally, physically. God sends these prophets to his people to bring them back, to call them back into relationship with him. And a lot of the time, not always, but a lot of the time, these people are, are beaten, killed, imprisoned, all sorts of terrible things happen to them because of their obedience to God in calling his people back into relationship with him. So that's part of the background of the history. But let's lay out just a few of the elements in this parable. You remember the parable. It starts with there's a vineyard. There's a man who's the owner. There's a vineyard, which he prepares. He digs a wall around it. You can go back to Isaiah to find a similar parable that God tells about his people Israel. And it probably draws or is connected with that parable in, in the Old Testament in Isaiah. So there's, this, there's a, an owner, there's a vineyard. He prepares it, he plants it, it's ready to give fruit, but he has to go on a journey, he has to go away. And so he invites these people to, to take care of the soil for him, to take care of the vineyard for him. And so these people come in and they tend to the vineyard. And while he's on his journey, he sends a messenger back asking for his share of the produce of that vineyard, which makes sense. This is an is a agricultural parable. And this would happen, this is not uncommon in the world in which Jesus lived. They were called absentee landlords. That didn't mean that they were bad. It just meant that they couldn't be everywhere at once. And so they would own some land in a different place, or they, they were on, on business. They were traveling. Journeys took a long time back then. You, you want to travel to Rome, it would take you several months, you know, if you had to do some business in Rome, potentially. And it was not unheard of to entrust some people to work on the land that you had as tenants, and then when the harvest time comes, a portion they get to keep. That's the reward for working the land. They can do with what they want. They can turn it into wine. They can eat the grapes. They can, do what, they can make raisins. They can do whatever they want. But the other portion, and they agree on what this portion is, the other portion goes to the landlord because he owns the land. It's his. It's, it's every, he has every right to 
uh, request it, demand it back. Um, if the fruit, if the soil is fruitful, then the, then both both of them uh, benefit. And and the temptation, and this was a common temptation, because communication was so difficult back then. Tenants, this is real in in real life back then. If the landlord went away. Um, they had really no way of knowing if he was still alive. He couldn't text them, go, oh, by the way, I'm still alive, and the rent is due next month, and then they go, oh, okay. So they can imagine stuff. That, well, we haven't seen him for 12 months. Maybe he's dead. You know, roads are dangerous. Taking a ship, ship voyage is dangerous. St. Paul can, uh, can attest to this. So maybe he's dead, and by some laws of possession and just sort of common practice, if he never shows up again, eventually the people who are working this vineyard, it will become theirs. It'll be sort of unclaimed land, but since they're on it, they'll get it, you know? And so there, there's a lot of wishful thinking. There's a lot of magical fantasy thinking. Maybe he died. Maybe he's gone forever. And uh, so, and then he sends somebody to collect part of the, the proceeds. Oh, he is alive. Okay. Well, that's too bad. And so, but their minds are already set on maybe this could be all ours. Maybe we can own this. And so uh, the history, at least, and this makes sense to the people listening to it, the history was the messenger, one messenger they beat and threw him out, another messenger they killed. Several other messengers came, and uh, eventually they all got kicked out. And then finally, a new character enters onto the scene, another element in this parable. The son. And this is what the landlord, the landlord says. I don't have anyone left, but I have the son whom I love. They will respect him because he's my son. I'm going to send my son, and he'll collect. He'll, he'll deal with these people. Now, you may be wondering, is that smart? <laughs> the track record's not good, is it? You know, the track record is bad. I'm going to send, you know, am I going to send my son? Well, in the, in the context, again, of this sort of agricultural setting that Jesus is operating out of, the son actually does have the, all the authority. The messengers do too, by the way. The messengers come with the authority of the owner. They come and they say, in the name of the owner, I'm here to collect the rent. And, and that's like the owner's talking to them. But so much more, the son. When the son arrives, it's as if the owner had arrived himself. This is the heir. This is somebody who has all authority, speaks completely for the owner. And, and since it's his father, too, it's even, it's even intensified. And so the son stands in for the father in this parable in all sorts of ways, both as uh, in, in a legal sense, collecting rent, but also in a, in a spiritual sense, as we'll see. And so the... The tenants now, the, again, the, the choice is sharpened for them. As long as it's just messengers that come and we kick them out, well, that's, that's one thing. But now the sun has come. They're faced with a really stark choice. Now we either need to capitulate or give in or be obedient or honor, honor the arrangement that we made with the Father, or we can take this whole thing for ourselves. We can have the whole thing. Because if we kill him, and then, you know, he, he, we're going to get this thing. Now, why they think that, I'm not quite sure. 
perhaps because it would take so much longer for that father, if this is his only son, to, to generate another heir that could come and challenge them. You know, he might not live that long. You can use your imagination. It's good not to press parables too hard, you know. Don't make them do things that they're not intended to do. <clears throat> so their, their chance, their choice is, if we kill the son, you know, we, we get this whole thing. We, we get what we want. Uh, the only thing that would be better is if the father came and we could kill him too. Um, why would the father risk his son back then? Just think of it as the parable. Think of it as the vineyard. Why would the father say, I sent all these guys, some of them they killed, some of them they beat. I know, I'll send my son. Why is that a good idea? You know? It might be a good idea because he has more authority and it might get them to that point where they say, well, we don't really want to take it this far. We're going we're to start being good tenants instead of wicked tenants. Or you could say, that was crazy of the father to do. That was incredibly foolish of the father to do. Why would you risk sending your son into a place where violence had been done to your other servants? Why would you do this? And then, as I look at this parable, I want to start asking myself, would I do this with my own child? Would I do this with George, say? I don't know what George would do. But I have to imagine, you know, George would just talk to them about the presidents, you know. And, and they would be, oh, he's cute. Well, we can't do anything this cute. But it's not like that. I, if you have an adult child. Even imagine that you have a big adult child who's big and strong and took a Krav Maga self-defense class and could actually defend themselves and was no slouch and could bear up under pressure, and you could say, I'm going to send him in there. Are you going to send him into a walled-off vineyard full, where he'd be outnumbered by people who have murdered and, and injured other servants that you've sent in there? I would never do that. I wouldn't do that with my son. I wouldn't do that with my son. Would you do that with your child? I don't think anyone here would do that with your child. Partly because you're like, well, it's just, it's just grapes. You know, it's not worth my son's life. We're not talking about grapes, though, are we? Because we figured it out. Um, but the only reason I would actually do that is if I cared about those people so much that, and that I thought that my son going to them would bring them around. And I cared so much about them coming around more than I cared even about my own son's life. That's the only way that I could do that as a father, is if I cared about them and them coming around into that right relationship with me as their landlord, if I cared about that more than I cared about my own son's life. You see where this is going, I think. If I didn't care about those people, I would just send an army. And that's, that was probably on the minds of some of the people in this, in this, listening to this parable. If you're a landlord and you have means, you go hire some people in the town who are big and strong and have taken Krav Maga and can go in there and force and, and bring them to heal. I guess that's in, the, that's in the ethos today. Bring them around. Force compliance. If I didn't care about them, that's where I would start. But if I did care about them, I would send my son in the hopes that he would bring them around. So that's not how God works, though. He doesn't send 
this force into the world. Um, and so I want you to just think about that right now. If you have children or even if you don't, you know, you don't have to have children to make this, to think this through. What kind of father would send his son into the world in such a way? What kind of father would send his son into a walled-off vineyard with dangerous people in that way? Now, next, and we don't know how long it takes. We don't know how long word takes to get back to the father, to the owner, that his son is dead. But his son is killed by these people. This is in the parable. He's going to eventually, he says, he's going to actually do that other option. He's going to go and clear out those wicked tenants. And he's going to then find other tenants who will produce a crop for him, who will honor that relationship with him. Now, as I said, I think all of the gospel is tied up in this parable. The, the whole thing is here. We have a God who is patient and kind, and he wants to share what he has with his people, and he wants them to be fruitful and connected with him. This vineyard that we're talking about is like the kingdom. It's like the land. It's like the temple, because Jesus is, is in the presence of the temple when all this is happening. He's kind of talking about the temple or that place where people have relationship with God. This vineyard, God cares about. He cares about that place where people are having a connection with him. And Jesus has just already, you know, knocked over the way that they've been doing it wrong. He's knocked over their tables. So these are, these are wicked people that he's talking to right now, the ones who have been uh, profiting by the way worship is being done at the temple. But God is patient and, he kind, and he's kind and he wants to share what he has. But he also, because he's God, he requires that the relationship be a certain way with the people who work in the vineyard. And it's this, is that he is their God and they're his people. That's the relationship, that's the one choice you have in your relationship with God. You know, this is the only choice that God permits. It's the only choice that his holiness will allow. He does not allow a choice where he, he says, uh, if you want to set yourself up as your own God and be my friend God, I'm okay with that. God does not say that anywhere. That does not work for God because it's not reality. It doesn't reflect the reality that he's our creator and we're his creature. It, it just doesn't work. And so these people who are trying to take over the vineyard it's idolatry. It's the love of self. It's the love of what God has given. It's taking what God has given and turning it to our own use. There's all sorts of, sort of things, ways that that can work. But he won't tolerate any other suggestions about what the relationship looks like because those suggestions just aren't based in reality. So he, but he patiently, he, so he's a little upset now. God is a little angry because they're not really returning. They're not honoring the relationship. But he patiently sends these prophets over the years over hundreds of years, to call the people to repentance. And, and he endures even that they're killed. He doesn't give up on relationship with them, even after he kills some of, their, uh, some of his prophets, his messengers. And then he does send his son. He says, he actually says, God says, they will respect my son. Now, what he's saying is, he's saying that his son is the representative of his true self, of his presence. His, he, is, he is God incarnate to the people of the vineyard, to this world, to the temple, to the land, all those things. And so that does the same thing. When Jesus enters the scene as God, God in the flesh, in the incarnation, 
it brings everything around him to a sharpening point, a point of decision, a point where there's one side and the other, and it's going to be very difficult to balance on the... T- just imagine, like, a, I have a little pencil here. And uh, Sonia did a really good job of she's been, um, sharpening our pencils because they get really dull. She doesn't like the electric sharpener. So she has this little one, and she did a really great job on this one. But I imagine, and you, I know most of you can't see this. I can barely see it. But it's very pointy at the end. And Jesus, when he comes into the world in the incarnation, he rises up like this. And you're either on this side of the pencil or on that side of the pencil. It would be incredibly difficult to balance anything on the tip of that pencil, where on the tip of that pencil you would say, I could kind of live in this world or I could kind of live in this world. I kind of think these people are right and I kind of think these people are right. I I don't want to be so exclusive as to decide on one side or the other. I don't know anything that could balance on the tip of that pencil except for a dancing angel or something like that, right? Or a, a speck of dust or a mic, uh, you know, an atom, or something small, something that doesn't matter, something inconsequential. Jesus comes into the world to bring a division. He says so himself. I've come into this world to divide people from each other because that's the nature of who I am. That's the nature of what God wants to do. I'm going to send my son into the vineyard, and they're going to have to choose. I'm going to send my son into the world in the flesh, and they're going to have to fall on one side of him or the other. That's all that's going to happen. And so he comes into Jerusalem and he sharpens the question of who he is and it sharpens to the point of nails in his hands and his feet and it sharpens to the point of thorns in his crown. It sharpens to the point of a spear in his side. And so he says to to the people listening, he says, will you bring this temple and this land and this kingdom back to God so God can receive its faithfulness? and its fruitfulness. Will you be on that side, or will you not? Will you be on this side, or will you not? Because the day is coming when the Father will send someone to this place. He's describing in real time what's happening at his presence in the temple, in real time, in a parable. The Father is coming someday, sometime, not yet, but kind of almost already, where he's going to take this vineyard away from you. And he's going to give it to some people who will do the right thing with it, who will honor the relationship in it. And right now you're not honoring that relationship with God in it. You've sold out to political forces. You've sold out to economic forces. You're putting the people through an endless set of laws that they can't keep, and you're profiting from all of it. This is my father's house. It cannot be like this. You have to pick a side. And it's it's tough. It's tough. Then he goes on, and you look in your text, um, you find it on uh, verse 10, where he says this, and he quotes to them uh, from the Psalms. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in his eye. That word reject is the same word that Jesus uses to describe his own passion earlier in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus says, the chief priests and the scribes and the religious leaders will reject the Son of Man and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. It's the same word. The Greek word is adokimos, adokimos. And the idea is that you test something for its value. 
And if it's dokimos, it means it's worthy, it's good. If it's adokimos, the, the negation is with that, that alpha at the beginning, like a theist believes in God and an atheist does not believe in God. So adokimos is something that's deemed worthless, that seemed not, that's deemed not suitable or useful or good or valuable or beautiful, and it's discarded and thrown away. Um, I have this thing here, and I wonder if it belongs to anybody. Does anyone know what this is? You can tell by the shape. This is a Fitbit. Does it belong to anyone who was left here at the church? It's pink, purple. I just want to make sure. Okay. You can have it. Nobody's claimed it for like four months. So these things are valuable, I think. I mean, it depends on what you think is valuable, okay? Uh, we have a rule in our family that if we're at the store and we want to buy something, we can buy it unless it, it costs more than $50. Then we have to call each other, okay? And maybe $50 makes it seem like we're like really high rollers to you guys, okay? I, have, I, I know somebody who says, uh, we have the same rule, but our rule is $20,000. So I don't, know what they, I don't know what their deal is with this. <laughs> They're like, we could go, I could go buy a car, and my wife would be okay with it. Uh, well, our families are different. But, um, and then sometimes we don't do the $50 thing, in all honesty, so I'll own that. But somebody left this here at the church. It's worth about $70. Maybe it's less now. Um, nobody came looking for it. It's in my mind, it's valuable enough to come looking for it. In my mind, it's, you kind of remember where you leave these things. It could be that somebody just has no idea where they left it. So they haven't called because they just don't know to call. But given the neighborhood that we're in right now, my guess is that this is, is like a nickel on the ground. You don't stoop down to pick up. Does that make sense? That this is adokimos. This is it's a great thing. It's a Fitbit. It'll keep track of your sleep. It'll keep track of your walking. Um, but it's not worth a phone call to the church to go find. I'll just go buy another one. Or I'll, I'll, I'll buy the newer one. Or it's just, it's just 70 bucks. That, that's nothing to us. We live in a $2 million house. And so what? Yeah, I get to, and that's true. If you live in a $2 million house, a $70 Fitbit's really kind of a, it's a pittance. We're always evaluating what things are worth, whether they're worth a lot or worth not much. It says here that the, the builders, the people in, in this land that Jesus is in, Jesus is talking about himself. They come across this strange stone and they say, this is adokimos. This isn't really worth that much. It's not particularly beautiful. It's not particularly great. I'm evaluating it as being unworthy. And so I'm going to take it to the edge of the city and I'm going to throw it out the gate, and it's going to go into a heap out there. And this is what they do with Jesus. He's not worthy. We're going to take him outside the city, and we're going to end him. And, that'll be, and that, we think, will be the end of this whole affair. He's not worth it. Jesus says what happens in God's economy, which is turned upside down, which we've seen over and over that God turns everything upside down, is that the thing that they took, which was not beautiful or great, in their eyes, ended up being the thing that was so much more useful and powerful and beautiful and amazing than they could ever imagine. So much so that whether you think of it as the top stone in the top arch without which the arch would fall down and crush you, or the cornerstone of the building which holds up the whole foundation of the church, without, of the building without which that stone, the foundation would begin to sag and crack and you would have a corrupted building. Either way, this is who I am, Jesus says. 
you don't think that much of me, but I'm going to end up being the one that is more important than all these things. God has done this, he says, and it's marvelous in our sight. Well, what can we say about all this? I need to end um, about this parable. First off, we have to be careful what we, th- what we mean when we say that the vineyard will be taken away from them and given to somebody else. There's been some mistakes, I think, in the interpretation of this over the years, and, and I think it might have been a feature of German, German theology in the, seven, or the 19th century that said this means that the kingdom of God will be taken away from the Jews and it will be given to the Christians, you know, because that's just what was in the air at that time. That's the way people thought about it. Um, and some people still think that way, and, and I, don't, I don't like that formulation, honestly. I think a better way of saying it is the, the vineyard was given to some people, and God expected them to be in relationship with him and to honor their side of that relationship by being fruitful, by working for him and by being on his side. And instead, they denied God his rights in that relationship, and they denied that relationship. And they sought to take over what was God's, and they sought to make themselves God in his place. And that was their sin. And and Jesus says, God is going to take the vineyard away from them, and he's going to give it to other people who will do for God what God asked the original people to do. So I wouldn't put this in terms of the Jews and then the Christians. I would put this in terms of relationship with God and faithfulness to God. God will take the vineyard away from the unfaithful people. The people who fell, who fell on, they were given a choice and they fell on the wrong side of the pencil, if you want to put it that way. Or the people who looked at the Fitbit and said, this is adokimos, this is nothing. God's going to give it to the people who look at Jesus and they say, this is the Son of God. I'm going to join with what he's doing. I'm going to be faithful to him. I'm going to work in this kingdom, and I'm going to be faithful and fruitful, and I'm going to give to God what he requires of me. That's who this vineyard goes to. That's who the kingdom goes to. So what can we say about all this? I would say that, that it's not, it's not uh, one of those old well-worn interpretations, perhaps, of this parable, but that God wants to give his world and his vineyard and his his relationships to those who will have it with him and will be fruitful for him. But the other thing is, I would say, is we can reevaluate how we see what God does in this world and how God works and how often it's upside down. We talked about this two weeks ago. And what I love was that last week we had Eric Venable come and talk about his ministry with City Team. And, And I know I've talked to a few of you, but we were all pretty thoroughly impressed with Eric. We thought he was a great guy. In fact, I think he used to be a hedge fund manager. Uh, when he wasn't a pastor. He used to be in sort of those lofty business circles. So there's a lot of things that he could have done with his life. But he didn't think his life, even as a hedge fund manager, was so great and wonderful that now he doesn't have time to work with drug addicts and homeless people in San Francisco. Isn't the kingdom of God funny? That somebody with that much talent and that much energy and that much theological acumen and all sorts of other job opportunities will say, well, I'm going to spend my life with drug addicts and homeless people. And I'm going to be in chaos every day and trust God. I was really moved by that. I was really moved by that. The world is upside down, and somebody like Eric is living in that upside down world in a way I think that God honors. 
Another thing I would take away from this is that the time is urgent. The time is urgent. We know who the Father is. We know who the Son is. We know who the tenants are. But we have to make sure that we're not the, te- the wicked tenants. Do you know what I mean by that? We're, we have to make sure that you're not the wicked tenant in this vineyard. That we are not refusing to give up to God what God requires rightfully. A time is coming and is now here, actually, when that will be given to someone else if we are deemed ourselves not to be worthy to work this soil. And at the same time, I think God cares about us, wicked tenants, and I, I would count myself a wicked, tenants, a wicked tenant because there's parts of my life that I probably reserve for myself and I don't give back to God as he requires. The same time God cares about wicked tenants like me, so much so that he would risk his own son's life. He would risk me taking his own son's life to bring me around to his side and to his son's side. He lives in optimism that the son will be respected by me. And he sends the son to me asking me to join in what he's doing. The whole, do you see how the whole gospel is in this? The whole gospel. God sends himself into the world. He, he cares for his creation. Re, the creation rebels against him. He sends his son. There's this hope at the future of of people coming around, but in the final analysis, God is going to deal with the wickedness in this world, and he's going to give the kingdom to those who are on his side. So I can come to repentance and hope in the same paragraph. It's just one paragraph. Repentance of my own life and how I've held back from God, how I've not lived upside down the way God calls me to. But I also have hope that the God of the universe sends his son just for me, the gospel and the future of the kingdom is all in here, and Jesus is always sharpening the point, and it gets sharper when we understand this parable. And I want to say this to you. Anyone in this room, you, you in particular, if you're listening, you know, I don't know where you are, each one of you. I know where some of you are. I haven't had the conversation with all of, all of us, and it changes all the time where we are. Perhaps things are going really well with God right now. Perhaps things are going really well with God right now in your life. Praise God. If that's so, I don't claim that it's always going well in my life. It's not. But if it's going really well right now, praise God. But, but maybe it's not. Maybe there's something that you're holding back from God. Maybe there's rebellion in your life. Maybe there's something that Jesus is trying to sharpen with you right now, where he's going to make the choices clearer to you and clearer and clearer and clearer yet what you need to do. And so I would ask us, this parable puts me in mind, what needs to happen in your life for you to be on his side? What needs to happen for you in your life for you to be on the side of Jesus so that he can redeem you and claim you and keep you as his own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, thank you for your word. Thank you for parables that force us to think. Thank you for your son, who was not so precious to you that you would not send him into this world so that you would redeem us and bring us around. Lord, in the weeks to come and the days to come, in this season of Lent especially, help us to examine ourselves. 
Help us to ask difficult questions of ourselves. Help us to evaluate our commitment to you and to your son. And help us to repent if we're holding back from you. Amen.